I look back on the way I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him, tell him the way things are, but I can't. That kid's long gone, and this old man is all that's left. I gotta live with that. Welcome! This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I'm Ben Boyce, former prisoner at the largest walled prison on Earth in Jackson, Michigan. And today's episode is a review of The Shawshank Redemption, a film based on a short story written by Stephen King. If you're thinking, wait, they rebooted that? They didn't. Not yet, anyway. But it's a classic film set inside a prison. So classic that one article I read in preparation called it The Foundational Redemptive Text. That's by Mike Nellis, and it's linked in the episode description if you want to read it. And to be honest, that's not a huge exaggeration. I study and write about cultural artifacts, art, media, and other stuff that becomes evidence for future generations who are trying to understand what we were all about. And the Shawshank Redemption has a ton of what are often called tropes, overarching themes that show up over and over in cultural representations. The guy in prison who can get you anything, the innocent man who can't get out, the escape plot that takes years to unfold, and most importantly, for any prison flick, outlaws who are seeking redemption which they just can't achieve. So today I want to dig into that film and unpack what it taught us as a culture, as well as what it can teach us about our culture, about ourselves. The short story is that when we watch prison films or TV shows, we come to see the world on the screen as co-mingled with our world. Now if you feel like, I know it's fiction, so what's the big deal? Consider all the stuff you've learned about the world from TV and film that later turned out to be wrong. Cars can jump and keep driving. You can get hit by bullets and keep fighting. Elevators have hatches in the ceiling. Breakfast is a huge family meal. Police are required to read you your rights whenever they arrest you. Crime scene investigators, CSIs, are miracle workers who can pull prints or DNA from anything. Cops yell, cover me and run into the line of fire. Bombs have wires and buttons for diffusing. The rainforest makes the majority of Earth's oxygen. Small holes in airplanes result in people being sucked out. All of that's false, but we've seen it on TV forever. And even though we know that the movies and the TV shows we're watching aren't necessarily true, we still come to accept that a lot of what goes on in those scenes is factual, that it's a representation of reality, even though it's often not. Media teach us things about the world, and whenever the person, place, or thing being portrayed is one which most of us don't have a lot of personal experience with, like prison, we can't balance out misinformation with actual memories, because most of us don't have any actual memories. Since prison is not a place where most of us want to go, the effects of media are exaggerated, just like they are any time the space depicted is a restricted space. You can double-check some stuff on TV really easily. Like, if you see an egg explode when it's microwaved, or a baking soda and vinegar volcano, it's easy to just replicate those experiments in your home and make sure that they weren't faked or exaggerated. But eggs exploding, or science project volcanoes, those are both low stakes, and they're easy to double-check. But in the media, often we're learning information that's pretty high stakes. 
it's a lot more important than having to clean up your microwave. Like, imagine seeing a TV show where an offensive slur is dropped that you've never heard, and no one on screen reacts. Or maybe the other characters even react positively instead of negatively. If you weren't familiar at all with the term, you might wind up using it somewhere in the future and getting fired. Or imagine, just imagine, if prisons and jails were always shown as violent institutions of terror packed with monsters who are all either victimizers or victims. You might actually come to support our current prison industrial complex based on faulty information that you didn't even know you soaked up. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's my basic goal with this episode. Prison films, like The Shawshank Redemption, teach us things about the world that aren't true. No big deal yet. But it turns out that the things that we learn about prison from movies like Shawshank, like Don't Drop the Soap, or that prisoners are always on the verge of a violent riot, these things tend to make us more supportive of the prison system. We don't notice when it happens, but according to work by people like Bill Usman and Travis Dixon, it does happen. Watching prison media makes us support prisons. Here's why. In prison films, as in most genres, the story is the same every time. Because if it wasn't, we wouldn't buy it. Now, of course, the characters are different, and the set is different, and all sorts of other unimportant stuff makes every new production appear to be original. But beneath them all is the same magic recipe for success. In a prison film, it works like this. Number one, get an outlaw who's done something bad, but not so bad that you can't convince an audience to give them a second chance, a shot at redemption. Oh, and if you can make them soft-spoken, cute, or innocent-looking, all the better to help the audience identify with them and want them to win. Number two, put that outlaw in jail or prison, surrounded by unrepentant bad guys who continue to commit crimes even while they're locked up. Number three, pick an antagonist from the many monsters in the prison, and then pick any number of awful things that they do to the story's outlaw. Beat them up, rob them, rape them, poison their family against them, frame them. There's a lot of options but they all still fit the general goal of driving the plot of our redeemed outlaw, who, by the way, we like even more now that they're being fucked with by this terrible bad guy. See why producers love prison scripts so much? And finally, number four, redemption. You gotta get the outlaw through the struggle, whether they wind up released or breaking out. And they have to maintain the viewer's support, or somewhere along the way, they have to give up the quest for redemption altogether. In which case, we simply switch our votes as viewers and want the outlaw to get what's coming to them. It's still the same story about an outlaw, just without their redemption being fulfilled. And that's it. That's every prison film ever made. Now you might be thinking, if that's true, it actually sounds like a good thing for people in prison. Because if every media spectacle of punishment has images of outlaws who are seeking their redemption, actively trying to better themselves, well then how can we come to hate outlaws? But don't forget that for every main character who's seeking redemption, there are hundreds or thousands of villains committing heinous crimes to block the protagonist's path. And those villains are who we're really talking about. They teach us that prisons might have a good guy or two stuck in the mix, but that most folks there are monsters who are beyond redemption. Here's how it works in Shawshank. Oh, <laughs>
my mother. I had your mother. She wasn't afraid. What the crisis is, happy horse shit? You might remember this scene when the guards hear a man crying after lights out and they come back into the cell block to beat him to death. Yeah, classy. Please, I ain't supposed to be here. Not me. I ain't gonna count to three. I'm not even gonna count to one. You will shut the fuck up or I'll sing you a lullaby. Now, of course, scenes like this one work to paint the entire institution, including the guards, as complicit in the abuse. But since the CEOs in any prison get paychecks and they get to go home every night, not to mention they choose every day to be a CO, I'm more interested in the treatment of the other incarcerated characters. And there's something you might not remember about that scene I just played the audio from, where the guards kill a man. It actually started a lot earlier. And the people who were responsible for the beating were actually his fellow prisoners. The boys always go fishing with first-timers. And they don't quit till they reel someone in. And if you sleep, you're gonna have night. Fat ass. dream, you're gonna be dreaming about me. Know you're there, I can hear you breathing. Don't you listen to these nitwits, you hear me? This place ain't so bad. Tell you what. I'll introduce you around, make you feel right at home. I know a couple of big old bull queers that just love to make your acquaintance. Especially that big white mushy butt of yours. God, I don't belong here. Scenes like this let viewers know that even the good guys in prison are still a threat. They'll literally gamble on your death. And then they'll work to avoid facing the reality of the death that they've caused. Like happened the next morning in the chow hall. How's that horse of mine doing anyway? Dude. Hadley busted his head up pretty good. Doc had already gone home for the night. Old bastard laid there till this morning. By then, hell, it wasn't nothing we could do. What was his name? What the fuck do you care, new fish? Doesn't fucking matter what his name was, he's dead. But of course, in Shawshank, it's not the laid-back prisoners who you really have to worry about. It's a group called the Sisters, who run around the prison sexually assaulting people including the story's outlaw, at will. And they never seem to get in trouble, a cinematic theme that works to erode public trust in correctional officers as much as those in prison. I mean, where's the guards who should be breaking this up? Sisters have taken quite a liking to you. Especially Boggs. I don't suppose it would help any if I explained to them I'm not homosexual. Neither are they. They have to be human first. They don't qualify. Scenes where people who are in prison commit terrible acts against one another or against the guards, they work to make viewers support the actual prison system. For if these longtime residents of the correctional system are uninterested in redemption, and instead they're constantly victimizing new people, well, it's pretty obvious we can't have them on the streets. Not only do such characters legitimize the prison system, but they actually cause us to feel like the prison system should be less lenient and more intense. It should stop these bad guys from doing the bad things that it's allowing them to do. Of course, in Shawshank, the prison is always also complicit. And the only reason the sister's sexual violence is eventually stopped 
is because they attacked the wrong guy, the story's outlaw, who's helping the guards and the warden commit crimes that make him too valuable to be messed with. As viewers, we get an image where those working for the system don't care if you're being abused, unless you're making them lots of illegal cash. Then they might step in to protect you. That's the image of prison we walk away with from Shawshank. As that scene where the guy is killed by guards begins, you might have noticed Chance a fresh fish. I wound up writing an entire chapter about this in the new book, which will be out early next year. It's called The Spectacle of Punishment, and it's about prison films. In one of the opening scenes, as Andy is being bused to the prison facility for the first time, we see an overhead shot of this massive penitentiary, and lots of people are just out on the yard doing whatever. Walking, lifting weights, playing basketball, reading. But the second the buzzer sounds, signaling a bus full of new arrivals is about to show up, everyone, and I mean everyone, moves as a herd to the fence so they can ogle the new arrivals. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in early 1947 for murdering his wife and the fella she was banging. And everyone who talks in the upcoming scene objectifies the new people, from the nameless folks who yell sexual comments. to Red and the other main characters, who actually take the bets, which later result in the nameless man's death. Taking bets today, Red? Smoke's a coin, better's choice. Smoke, put me down for two. All right, who's your horse? That little sack of shit. I'll take the chubby fat ass there, the fifth one from the front. Put me down for quarter deck. And once again, we get an image of a prison system packed with awful people who will gamble on your death who see new arrivals as possible sources of entertainment or income, fresh fish. That brings us to Red, an outlaw whose redemption is hard-earned and hardly given. See, normally prison stories have one outlaw who manages to earn their redemption. And in this case, that's very clearly Andy Dufresne, who has to literally crawl through a tube of shit to escape from the prison because he's been falsely convicted. But unlike everyone else in the prison, who all claim that they're innocent, Red doesn't deny his crime, and he instead positions himself as serving a just sentence for a terrible thing that he did. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you ask. <laughs> you gonna fit right in. Everybody in here is innocent, and you know that? Hey, what you in here for? Didn't do it! Lawyer fucked me! His refusal to deny his guilt when everyone around him does so is meant to cue us viewers or us readers into the fact that he's different than those other bad guys, maybe even worthy of a second chance. What are you in for? Murder. Same as you. Innocent. Only guilty man in Shawshank. He also becomes our tour guide throughout the film, since his voice is the narration, so we already feel safe and cozy with him. We sort of hope that he makes it in the end. Of course, he gets Andy the rock hammer that eventually springs him from prison, and throughout the film, we see him as sort of an anchor in the wild system. Someone who sort of holds the people around him down, even when things get rough. And of course, in the end, he's rewarded his redemption. But not without some huge bumps in the road. Red also shows us an image of a prison system that is so confusing and misguided that he's only allowed his redemption, in his case, his parole, when he actually stops trying to redeem himself and instead basically tells the parole board to go to hell. 
You might remember these three scenes where Red pleads his case for release. We see by your file you've served 20 years of a life sentence. Yes, sir. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I learned my lesson. I'm a changed man. I'm no longer. It says here that you served 30 years of life sentence. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. Without a doubt. And I can honestly say I'm a changed man. No danger to society here. And of course, the first two are very different from the third. If I'll say you've served 40 years of a life sentence, you feel you've been rehabilitated? Rehabilitated? You know, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, it means you're ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word. A politician's word, so that young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. As viewers, we get another image of a prison system that only works to offer redemption to those who no longer even want it. Now, of course, there's some good stuff in Shawshank, too. Some scenes actually expose the prison system as complicit in its failure to rehabilitate, like when Andy describes his criminal behavior like this. Now, the funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. Viewers in scenes like this get an image of prison as a place that's designed so poorly that it actually increases the behavior that it claims to be treating. The same thing happens with lines like, I'm up for rejection next week. That was directed at Red when he's disappointed after coming out of one of his rejected parole hearings. Lines like that force viewers to think about the hopelessness of prison and the way the entire system breeds that hopelessness. There's also a few really nostalgic scenes that were almost certainly based on some sort of true story that somebody writing the script must have experienced. Like the shower and de-lousing scene before new arrivals at the prison are herded into the cell block naked. They did something very similar to my group when we got to Jackson Prison from the county jail. We became property of the state prison. But the clothes we'd been wearing in the van were still property of the county jail. So the guards took them back leaving us newly arrived and stark naked. A group of about 12 of us was herded into the showers and forced to use a special shampoo on any body hair before being given a reused one-piece overall. There's a lot more I could talk about here, but one thing that stands out in this film as problematic is the depiction of Brooks as institutionalized and the ease with which all of the other characters seem to accept that this was just a foregone conclusion. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if you tried. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. I'm not saying institutionalization is a myth. I think everyone is institutionalized to some degree. That's how society works. You know which side of the road to drive on without thinking about it. You know which places to cross the street, or where to use the bathroom, or how to order food at familiar restaurants. That's all a result of living in a system of rules for so long that you've just come to feel like those rules are normal 
They're just the way things are. Our brains and bodies are designed to become institutionalized. And the producers in Shawshank actually drew those lines pretty well between what Brooks was experiencing from his time in prison and his decision to end his own life. I don't have a problem with forcing viewers to think about how little prison does to prepare us for release, or how much it does to prepare us for failure. But it's about representation. Dying from suicide is one of the only endings that we see in movies when people get out of prison. We go back to prison, we die, or, once in a great while, we become unusual in movie world, usually a main character, and we succeed when everyone around us in movie land prison fails or dies. Think about it. When was the last time you saw someone in a prison movie get out and just do okay? It doesn't happen. In movies, it's either a non-stop struggle to overcome your past, a crime-fueled return to prison, or death, usually also related to additional criminal activity. On TV, no one is normal when they get out of prison, and the ways we differ from the general public are deadly and self-destructive. It's not that it's wrong, it's just flat. It's the only image we get. We almost see Red choose the same ending as Brooks, and we're supposed to see his choice to quit his job and violate his parole while going on the run as a sort of victory for him. Plus, it feels right because that's the way prison stories are supposed to end, with the outlaw on the run because he can't hack it on parole. I mean, he was in prison for 40 years, right? I get it. Movies are fun. They take us on adventures to faraway places, and they're not going away anytime soon. I'm not saying we're all bad people for watching these productions. I'm saying these productions teach us things, and they do so in a way that's crafty. We don't even notice as we learn. When those things we learn without noticing make us more afraid of our neighbors and more supportive of prisons, we should take the time to not only notice, but to resist those messages and to demand more from producers than tired-ass tropes and repackaged stereotypes of crime and punishment. Don't get me wrong, Shawshank is classic. I never watch it without crying, usually at a different part I hadn't even noticed before. But my point is that it's also a reflection of us as a culture, since it became a classic, a film which a large portion of the population has engaged with and consumed, often repeatedly. That means the messages in it work, they resonate, and they therefore reflect back at us what we're already thinking as a group. We've clearly got some work to do, given that these same tricks and stereotypes, which were deployed in Shawshank, are still used all the time in movies today. Our media diet is shit. We can do better, but it takes consumer demand. I'm not that big a fan of attacking fake news productions or far-right or left conspiracy news, because when we attack any consumer product, we're ultimately, to some degree, attacking those who pay for it and keep it in business. Fox News would change its programming the second their audience demanded they change it, or the day ratings fall. They, like all media producers, give us what we want, not what they want. That's the only way they stay in business. To fix Hollywood's problem with media stereotypes, we have to fix our hearts. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. Rehabilitated. It's just a bullshit word. 
So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Because to tell you the truth, I don't give a shit. <laughs>